finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things, and then we talk about them. And we have decided to read a Christmas classic for this episode. That's right. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the novelization of uh, Santa Claus vs. the Martians. Uh, not quite. No, no. We read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Because we're classy like that. Well, I figured my thought process was, one, I don't think there's a lot of specifically, outside of the ones written by Charles Dickens himself, I don't think there's a lot of explicitly Christmas-focused novellas. And, you know, we'd already done The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, which, in that very small category, is probably my personal favorite. Uh, but I figured we, we should, at least, if before we move on from doing something Christmassy every December into what I think our general plan is, which is to maybe do something that's sort of more generally wintry, we should tackle the big dog. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we talk a lot about, on the podcast, about iconic characters. Mm-hmm. And I think when you think about A Christmas Carol, there's more than one. I think, I mean, Ebenezer Scrooge, Jacob Marley, Bob Cratchit, Tiny Tim. I think there's a lot of, not including the ghosts too, they're pretty popular too. But there's a lot of iconic characters that, even if you've never read the actual novella, you know the characters, you know the plot, you've seen one of a billion different types of adaptations that have happened based on this novella. And it's kind of like part of, I mean, it's British, but it's also part of the American Christmas tradition. Yeah. And I think like it's, this I think is almost on another level of iconic from some of the other stuff we talked about on one hand, you know, Scrooge is such an iconic character that there's at least one, also sort of iconic and beloved character that is just a sort of direct like riff on him i'm talking of course of about scrooge mcduck but there are others like there's lots of other like famous rich guy characters that are basically just scrooge but also this is one of a couple of stories uh, of you know like non-mythological stories that have become these kind of like plot archetypes I'm thinking, of course, of, like, uh, The Prince and the Pauper is another one. Where it's, like, in addition to there being lots of adaptations, there are lots of stories, like, episodes of shows and cartoons that just have the structure of this and aren't even a direct adaptation. of it. Yeah, I think I mentioned, when I made notes when we talk about, because you have to talk about um, the movies and different adaptations of this novella but i made a note to talk about how sort of integrated it has become in the popular culture Mm -hmm. because like every tv series that's kind of celebrates some kind of holiday has some version of a christmas carol story yeah my favorite one of those is uh they do it in sanford and son but because it's like it's a sitcom right the characters have to stay it's especially it's a to come from the 70s like the characters have to stay consistent so fred sanford learns his lesson and has his like scrooge like 
em- embrace goodness moment, and then you watch the next episode, and he's just back to being curmudgeonly Fred Sanford. Well, I think a lot of times, too, it's kind of like... Oh, wait, I lied. That's not my favorite. But continue. Well, let's hear your favorite. My cause... favorite is the Blackadder one, which is the reverse. Because if you ever watched any of Blackadder? Yes. So for people who don't know, it's uh, the other thing besides Johnny English and Mr. Bean that Rowan Atkinson is famous for, which was the, it was this British comedy series where each series of it, each season or however you want to call it, was set in a different time period and Rowan Atkinson played the descendants of this guy starting in like uh, Tudor times. The Black Adder, who's like this scoundrel, scheming scoundrel. And then in every subsequent series, it goes ahead in time. He goes down in social status, but goes up in intelligence. That's the general pathway. The last season is set in like World War II, I think. Uh, But they did a Christmas special where he plays like a Victorian descendant of the black adder who is a nice guy and the spirits teach him to be a jerk like his family <laughs> that's my actual favorite but i like the irony of the the sanford and son one all right so let's get into it so a christmas carol is written by charles dickens yep um he is one of the iconic british writers of the victorian times he was born in 1812 he died in 1870 had a kind of like a speckled family you know, story. His father was kind of a... To be honest, I don't really know much about his personal life and history. Well, his father was kind of um, a spendthrift, which is how they described it. It's a very British way. Mm-hmm. So the family was on the downturn when Charles Dickens was a child. And I think this is a kind of a misconception. A lot of people think of Charles Dickens as this wealthy um, kind of civic leader, but he came from sort of not poor poverty, but maybe sort of the gentry on a downward spiral. I think there's this thing where people, because he is kind of like thought of as being this incredibly successful writer, like he is one of the guys, when people sort of talk about there being value in populist, you know, wide reaching mainstream art, like the two dudes that they cite, well, the three dudes that they cite are Dickens, Shakespeare, and Hitchcock. And But I don't think that it's like... The apparatus did not really exist at the time to make a successful writer an like, obscenely wealthy person like it does now with the writer of Wizard Book, for example. Yes, but I think one of the things that sort of Charles Dickens is known for is he... First of all, he always wrote in the contemporary period. He never wrote historical. He never wrote any kind of futuristic things. Mm -hmm. Everything that he wrote was a commentary on the society that he currently lived in. And this is very important because he has this sort of reputation for making social commentaries. A lot of his books are about um, poverty, working class. A lot of them are about sort of this the concept of like child labor and how do you deal with the poor in the, you know, in an industrial society. Mm-hmm. And that sort of becomes his thing. He also talks a lot about wealth disparities, which is kind of a big issue in England at the time. Cause there is, it's kind of, you know, I know Nate is very concerned about the contemporary times. It's the same thing. There's a very thin layer of exceptionally wealthy people and a large layer 
of working class and people who are living below the poverty level when Charles Dickens is writing. Mm -hmm. And he tries to talk a lot about that. Now, he also, and we talked about this when we talked about um, the death of Ivan Ilyich, he writes a lot of political things in his books and in his stories, and he does support social causes, but he's very concerned with keeping his own wealth. Yeah. So that's kind of the thing that, you know, there's... Nate will talk about it. I don't want to spoil any topics coming up, but he really, he cares about society, cares about the working class, but he does also only care about maintaining his social status and his wealth. Yeah, I think like there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of crossover in terms of like style and focus between him and Tolstoy, but I do think that the big difference between them is that Tolstoy was genuinely a radical, and Dickens is not. He's probably what we would now... I don't know if we would think about him in those terms then, but we would now call him a liberal. Yeah. And I think, I mean, he he made a conscious decision when he wrote his stories, especially like his sort of iconic work, Oliver Twist, Mm -hmm. where he wanted to break... Because he knew he had a large audience, and I think he did this successfully, and a lot of writers kind of copy this as time goes on. He knew he had a large audience and he was able to bring to light the issues of poverty to people who were wealthy, but then also giving people who were in the working class something to identify with. And I think that he sort of played both those ends very well. And one of the things that he really did a lot of, and I think starting, he started it most successfully. He might not have been at first to do it. But the serialization of his novels and his writing made his writing more available to the working class because they might not be able to afford an expensive bound volume, but they could afford a newspaper or a magazine. And sometimes they would, you know, they would be able to read these works of fiction where they might not have, you know, accessibility to them if they were just full-fledged novels. Yeah, this one was not serialized, could be, probably because it is so short. A lot of his other stuff, really his longer works, were all sort of serialized. What is your favorite Dickens novel? My favorite Dickens novel? Hmm. I mean, it probably is Oliver Twist, I think. Yeah, that's a good one. I think my favorite is Bleak House because, to me, that's almost like the one that's most like a detective story. Bleak House is cool. I do like that one a lot. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't quite tug at my heartstrings the way that But I think, I mean, if you think of, like, just the amount, like, his legacy is strong. And some of his, nearly all of his novels are sort of iconic novels. Mm -hmm. And people know Bleak House. They know Albert Twist. They know the Pickwick Papers, Great Expectations. I mean, there's, there's, like, Every person in some way has been exposed to a Charles Dickens novel or story. And I feel like... Well, yeah, it's like there's... uh, He has other iconic characters, uh, you know, like the Artful Dodger and Fagin and stuff like that. Uh, And then it's also like it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It's like just a phrase that is in the lexicon forever. And it's like one of the go-to like jokes about starting a story it's like it was the best of times the worst of times once upon a time and it was a dark and stormy night yeah. like those are the, the ways that you make a joke about how to start a story 
But I think also, I mean, to be a writer and to have like a phrase named after you, you know, people are like... Dickensian? Yes. People say like it's Dickensian. I mean, you don't... Like the only other writer that I think of when I think of like terms like that is Kafka. Well, it's Kafka-esque. There's Lovecraftian. Lovecraftian, yes. Shakespearean. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, there's others, like, but a lot of times it's, like, the things will get named after the work and not even the writer. It's, like, Kyotic is a word, but we don't call it Cervantian. Yeah. There's Rabelaisian, but a lot of people don't even put together that that, one, that word is not used a lot, and two, I don't think a lot of people put together that that's named after a dude. (laughs) So, The Christmas Carol, which is the full title that you don't often hear, is A Christmas Carol in Prose Being a Ghost Story of Christmas, was published in 1843. Yeah, I think um, people people sometimes don't think of this like, this is a ghost story. And that's, you were saying like, oh, um, Dickens always wrote in contemporary time, he was concerned with social issues. That's true. But he also wrote a fair amount of ghost stories. Like The Signal House and stuff like that. If you think about, like, a contemporary of Charles Dickens, you think of, like, Wilkie Collins, who was, you know, he was starting to bring that sort of horror, ghost kind of genre to the forefront of literature. I mean, he was hugely successful with his Woman in White, and he was, like, kind of credited with starting, like, the the whole British detective genre that became really popular with Sherlock Holmes. So I can see that Dickens, when he was writing contemporary style, would do things like that, like have a mystery, have some kind of horror element. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also think, like, the before horror was... Well, actually, I mean, I could be totally wrong with this. I have this impression of, like, kind of before horror was totally codified as a genre in and of itself you had a lot of writers that were like the ghost story was kind of its own thing its own genre sort of predating horror and a ghost story doesn't necessarily need to be horrific it just needs to be a story with ghosts in it but whatever well i'm just trying to think of like like dracula was written in 1897 and i was trying to think of when frankenstein was published 1818. Yeah, so he, so so he's he's writing in a world where Frankenstein exists, but Dracula is yet to come. That's so, interesting to think about that time period. But I think like also there's a there's a history of like British ghost stories, and we talked a lot about this like when we talked about boarding schools, and there's this sort of oral history of like scaring each other with stories and things. Yeah. But this is this is interesting because I before we get into talking about it, I wanted to bring this up because I was thinking about this. It says that it's a ghost story and a lot of people say yes, it's a ghost story. And a lot of people say that it's an allegory and it's a cautionary tale and it's kind of a morality tale. What kind of tale do you think this is? Okay. Well, I mean I think it is a morality tale. I don't necessarily think it's an allegory because I'm not sure what is allegorical here. Well, I don't think it's a morality tale. I think... So, what year did this... Was this published? 1843. Okay, so there's another work that I think... When I read this, I think about another work that will come about five years later that also deals with a specter. (laughs) But the specter isn't haunting uh, a single rich guy. It's haunting Europe. The specter of communism. So this book comes out five years before the Communist Manifesto. And Karl Marx has is specifically uh, on record as praising Dickens for exactly the stuff we talked about, for illuminating social issues and ills in the world. Uh, and 
he, like Karl Marx, seemed to be a pretty big fan of Charles Dickens. Uh, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, not the opposite end of the spectrum, but in the counterpoint, George Orwell has criticized Charles Dickens for basically the thing I said about him not being a radical, for not really having a materialist analysis, and not showing like a genuine want to change the world. And I think that that's true in this. Like, as much as this story is decrying greed, it kind of is a story that could only have been written by a relatively wealthy guy. Because it doesn't really seem to have a problem with the idea of wealth. And it kind of romanticizes uh, poor people a little bit. I think what the point of this story is, is like if you read the introduction to the Communist Manifesto, they talk about this sort of history of class struggle. And they talk about the rise of like the, the millionaire merchant, the, like, the wealthy businessman. And... I think in the same way that the early communists were, not the same way, but, but similar to the early communists, I think this is society as typified by Charles Dickens, the great writer of social novels, uh, wrestling with the idea of this ever-expanding and you know increasingly empowered class of extraordinarily wealthy merchants and bankers who are not you know i'm about to say something that's kind that might get us canceled which is that like i think in some ways they're both very bad and i'm not advocating for either of them but like in some ways the like monarchy is a little bit better than capitalism because the fiction in the monarchy is that they were given it that the like and but the fiction in capitalism is that they earned it which makes them further detached from any sort of sense of morality or ability to question them and so i think like dickens is seeing these dudes become incredibly wealthy uh they're all to, to a man shady because they're rich you know merchants and businessmen so of course they're shady and they are acting in like incredibly selfish ways and having like increasing amounts of power over the lives of other people. And I think this book is basically him pleading with them to sort of embrace their better nature. I think like the the point of the novel is the same as the point of the spiritual journey that Scrooge goes on. To to plead with these guys to embrace some sense of morality and responsibility to their fellow man. Because he Dickens sees the way things are going and is is scared. But he I think he is also on some level scared that if it gets that bad, then the the you know, people will rise up and they'll come even for him. Well yeah, I think that I mean it's pretty clear that Dickens plan his idea is yes, I care about the working classes and the poverty and I want them to be improved and they can be improved as long as I can continue to improve myself. And the level that I want to approve myself, which is not the same. Yeah. And then also, in kind of the same vein of, like, how much I love, like, literary burns when other writers diss them, other writers, I found a quote which I thought was really interesting. George Bernard Shaw said, The Great Expectations was more seditious than Das Kapital. And he, I guess, I don't know how you feel about that comment. Uh... I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. 
But I think that's the thing. Like, the, we talked about this way... Well, you know what? Never mind. In a, in a previous iteration of this podcast, it doesn't exist anymore. We talked about Napoleon of Notting Hill. And I said that, like, one of the problems with Chesterton is he doesn't have, like, material analysis. And he, he doesn't have, like, class consciousness. And I think that's the thing with Dickens. Dickens has more of a sense of class consciousness. But at the core, like, the problem... Not the problem with him, but one of the things that that limits his effectiveness as an observer of the world is this lack of material analysis. And what's one of the things Orwell talks about is that Dickens is is less concerned with the the actual structural problems of society and more with these questions of human nature, which I think is on display here, where his solution to the problem of the overly powerful, you know, bourgeoisie millionaire is that he needs to become a better person and not that we need to reform the system that made him. Yeah, and I think this topic, this novel, this idea that Dickens had is extremely relevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're living through a pandemic and we're living through this sort of society upheaval and we're living in a society where there is that stratification. Mm-hmm. And as more and more people are impacted by the pandemic, the greed that we're seeing from the upper class, from the extremely wealthy, from the corporate entities that are run by these people, we start to see this sort of same thing that Dickens was predicting, this sort of stratification, this sort of unbalanced, this sort of lack of empathy, lack of concern for the people who actually do the work. And that's what I think, that's what happens in England is this becomes so much of a problem, especially like as you get closer to the early 1900s, where you start to see this sort of dissolution. Mm-hmm. And then the rise of socialism in England is is very much mimicked in what's happening now this sort of contentious election period that we're going through right now, which is very timely and very relevant. So these sort of ideas that Dickens writes about, he writes about them in a way that continue to stay relevant. And I think that's what makes him one of the iconic writers. Yeah, I agree. So The Christmas Carol, like we said, was published in 1843. And... I had read the 1905 American edition. This is the one that was published by Bacon and Taylor in 1905. And it has the illustrations by the sort of very popular American illustrator, George... It's G.A., right? Yeah, George Alfred Williams. Mm -hmm. And that was from Project Gutenberg. Nate read the original, the 1843, with the illustrations by John Leach. Yeah, John Leach is... um... He's like Dickens' illustrator. He worked with him a lot. He was also a terrible person. Very anti-Semitic. But yeah, there's not... Other than the illustrations, though, there isn't really a difference between the... As far as I know, there's no difference No, there's no the difference between text. And I think Williams, in the American edition, he is more in aligned in his illustration style to Maxfield Parrish. And then later on, which I'm just going to shout out because one of our listeners is a huge fan of him, so we're going to shout it out. <laughs> There is a later edition that's illustrated by Alfred Rackham. Which is we, Alfred or Arthur? Arthur. I think it's Arthur Rackham. Arthur Rackham, which is sort of the iconic imagery that people think of when they think of the Christmas Carol. I also listened to 
this free Audible's um, version of A Christmas Carol that was performed by Tim Curry, which was done in 2010. That's free, and it's extremely well done, and Tim Curry is awesome at doing all of the voices for The Christmas Carol. He's very dramatic, very British. His pacing is perfect, it's, and it's a really well done audiobook. And then also, you, because it's in the public domain, you can also find many, I think there's eight versions of A Christmas Carol on LibriVox. I listened to one of those a couple of years ago, and they were very good. But most of them are, each stave is done by a different person. Okay. So, you know, if you're looking for something that has the continuity of one performer, this audible. Yeah. So each, you, talk, you just mentioned the staves, right? So, like... We didn't really discuss the plot because I kind of assume everyone knows it. But if you don't, like, the general structure is that Ebenezer Scrooge is a rich banker. He owns a counting house. He has an employee named Bob Cratchit who's very poor, and he's very mean to him. Scrooge hates Christmas, and he's very greedy. His dead business partner, Bob, uh, I almost called him Bob Marley, (laughs) Jacob Marley, uh, visits him as a ghost and tells him he'll be visited by three spirits. He is visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, who each show him visions that implore him to change his ways and become a better person and embrace the Christmas spirit and be kind to his fellow man. That's the whole story. It's split up into these five staves. So stave one is like the introduction uh, and his visitation from Marley, right? Yes. Stave two is the ghost of Christmas present. Stave three is the ghost of Christmas past past stave four as it goes to christmas future and then the shortest one stave five is you know the iconic part where he wakes up the next day and he's like boy what day is it get the largest turkey and he you know has a dinner with cratchit's family and tiny tim and that's the end of the story but do you want to go through each of them or do you have yeah so in stave one we meet scrooge and he's working in his count house is what they call it and he's very miserly, and this is, people know all about this. He's obsessed with the use of coal and the cost of coal. Yeah. So he keeps, he keep, he thinks that Bob Cratchit is a terrible worker, and he's very lazy, even though Bob is good-hearted. He works hard, and he puts up with the shit that Scrooge always gives to him. Yeah. So, like, it's Christmas, and he doesn't, he begrudges him a half a day off on Christmas Day to spend with his family. Well, he lets him have the day off on Christmas on the, with the promise that he's going to come in early on Boxing Day. Yes. Which, uh, I can't believe he would deprive him of Boxing Day, a holiday that I definitely know what the deal is with it. So, there's a part where he says that Bob Cratchit is overpaid, and he's a terrible worker, and then... During the day, during the work day, so it's Christmas Eve, his nephew comes to visit to invite him to dinner, and he says, no, he doesn't want to go there, and later on to... This is where we get the iconic bah humbug as well. Yes. And then two solicitors come, they're, they're um, soliciting donations for charity, and he gives them a speech about the workhouses, and he... Well, they, they ask him for charity to help people and children who are in need. And then he his response is, and this becomes important later because it is repeated to him, is he's like, are the prisons closed? Are the workhouses closed? And when they say no, he's like, well, then I don't see any need to help them. Like, my taxes go to fund those places. So I don't know why I have to give any extra money to these people. 
And I was really struck reading it this time by this part. Because you think, like, in your mind, you know, maybe you read this when you're a kid. Or, like you said, you see any of the many adaptations. Or, you know, I've seen stage adaptations. I would go with my grandmother on my dad's side to see, like, you know, staged adaptations of this when I was a kid. And you think of Scrooge as, like, a cartoon. Like, you think, like, what is what is Ebenezer Scrooge? Oh, he's a cartoonishly greedy miser. And I I read this part, and I was like, he's not a cartoon, like, at all. I think living now in 2020, having gone through four years of Trump and, you know, seeing all of these, like, conservative pundits get raised up and see further exposure and just arguing with jerks on Twitter... He doesn't feel like a cartoon any me anymore. He feels, like, depressingly real. This response about, like, I don't need to give to charity or to help these people further because my taxes already pay for the workhouses and the prisons is, like, indistinguishable from something that, like, a Ben Shapiro would actually say unironically. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I think that's why, like I said, he remains relevant. So he kind of dismisses these two charity workers Mm-hmm. And then he goes home, and then we realize that he lives in this giant mansion, but he's so miserly, he sublets his mansion out. And this is the mansion that he lived in with his partner, mm-hmm. Jacob Marley. And at one point, he talks about renting out the basement of his house to a wine merchant. He's... So even though he's rich, and he has all these sort of perks of being rich, he just wants to make more money. Yo, he's also so miserly that he doesn't ever light his house. Yeah. His house is always dark because the dark is cheaper. Which, like, that's... Okay, that's, like, where he's a cartoon a little bit. But, like, the stuff he says does not feel cartoony at all to me anymore. So, just before we get into Jacob Marley's visit, um, the term bah humbug doesn't mean, like, I hate Christmas. It mm-hmm. means that he thinks that somebody's saying something that's either a lie, false, or misleading. It's like bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think people take it to mean, like... Like, it just means I'm a jerk now in the cultural lexicon. But yeah, he was being like... Yeah, like, ah, uh, it's bullshit. Shut up. So, this is the seventh anniversary of Jacob Marley's death. Mm-hmm. And then that night, Jacob Marley shows up. He's a ghost. And sort of depicted in this iconic way he's himself but he is carrying the chains that he has forged in his life by all the misdeeds and all the greediness that he does so he's carrying this huge heavy chain that's that's hanging from it are like money boxes and all kinds of things that symbolize his greed and his uncaring behavior and he comes to Scrooge to plead with him to change his ways because in some way that's not very clear the fate of Jacob Marley who's in limbo for these seven years is linked to the behavior of Scrooge. I think the idea is that Scrooge is that one of the chains Marley forged in life is to Scrooge that he by working with Scrooge in some way didn't make him the guy that he is but like helped him be this dude. And then if in some way, I think the idea is if in some way if Marley can change Scrooge and he can at least partially redeem himself. I have um, a bunch of notes that I've never put together into a full story about Jacob Marley because I think he's a really fascinating figure. This is a really like interesting one. Look, I'm getting all ahead of myself. 
Do you think this is the origin of ghosts having chains? I don't know. But I think what the, the chain both symbolizes the misdeeds of Jacob Marley and his inability to be free of the living world. Well, yeah, I think there's like, interestingly here, I'm sure completely unintentionally, there is kind of like a Buddhist reading of the cosmology here because he is like literally chained by his material greed and wealth and like his attachment to the world is what keeps him hanging around as this tortured spirit. I think you're right because even though Dickens doesn't bring any type of religion into this, mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of religious iconography. Like yeah, like we mentioned, like Marley is chained to the living world for his misdeeds. He's chained. He's his fate is entwined with another person, Scrooge. And then also, I think once we get into the depiction, especially of the ghost of Christmas past, the way that he's depicted with the candle and the light, it kind of shows you that like there's some kind of spiritual, not just spirit, like spirit equals ghost, but spirit equals this sort of religious experience that Scrooge, this sort of awakening that he has. And I think that's interesting. One of the things I wanted to bring up is now this sets the story so we know what's going to happen. Three ghosts are going to visit Scrooge throughout the night. Mm -hmm. But you also start to see a lot of like sort of recurring themes and motifs that are happening. There's lots of bells being rung, ominous bells, cheerful bells, kind of you see that a lot. There's also this sort of symbol of the holly, which is kind of like a um, a pagan symbol for, you know, re- rebirth or whatever that happens during the winter. And then you start to see things like the depiction of like poverty as being cold. And so these kinds of things that Dickens used to heighten the sort of meaning of what the story that he's telling starts to happen. Yeah, so a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, one, I think there's, like you said, there's lots of, a lot of the haunting, lots of it is conveyed through sounds, like you said, like these, these bells and music and creaking and through lights, lights of different colors. I have a theory about that. Of course. Which is, I think not, not like a really even like a symbolic or interpretive theory, just like why Dick, I think Dickens wrote it like that. Uh, I think Dickens had... Experience hypnagogic hallucinations because I experience hypnagogic hallucinations, and it's almost exactly like the haunting he describes in this. It's these weird, sudden sounds, faint music, bells ringing, flashes of lights in different colors. Like, there, he does a really cool thing, I think, where all the imagery is very dreamlike, but then he also goes out of his way to be like, This is not a dream. Because when Scrooge is coming into his house, um, leading up to the ha- appearance of Jacob Marley, there's this part which you know shows up in a lot of the adaptations where he sees his door knocker as Marley's head. Mm-hmm. But the narration it go- like stresses Scrooge was not thinking about Jacob Marley when he showed up, and his door knocker is like totally normal. He doesn't have like a lion's head door knocker that would look different in the shadow to try and impress upon you like take this literally. Scrooge is not dreaming. In the context of the story, he is literally being visited by spirits. But then everything they do feels like a dream. Well, I think that's true. And I think that every person can relate to that sort of twilight 
period, either right before deep sleep or right at the ending of deep sleep, where people wake and they're partly in the dream and they're partly feeling disoriented. And I think he picks up on that. Yeah, and I th- also I really dig how he, through his description of Scrooge's home, he sort of works in his critique of this kind of like greed and miserliness where it's like like you said poverty is represented in this very often by cold right and like scrooge's home because he is so cheap and greedy is cold and dark and like he experiences no more sort of like sensory pleasure or comfort in his life than cratchit does even though he's so rich and he has lives his life in this miserable way entirely because of his own choices, unlike Cratchit, who is constrained by his class. Well, I think it's definitely some type of like poverty of emotion. Also, I, I think one of the parts that's sort of an iconic part of the Scrooge experience is that scene when he's in his hallway and he sees what he describes as a locomotive hearse. Yeah. Going up the steps. And I was very curious about that because I remember sort of seeing lots of different adaptations where it's actually a locomotive. Mm. But I think what Dickens is talking about is locomotive in his mind means moving without yeah. like any kind of like, you know, a horse carriage moves with a horse, but a locomotive is something that moves on its own. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one of the things you see that sort of ghost hearse and it's kind of telling you. It's, you know, foreshadowing what is going to be happening in the story. So, of course, Scrooge doesn't believe. Why not? Because Mm. he does, he's very, not only is he greedy and uncaring and terrible, but he's also unbelieving. So he doesn't believe what happens. And, of course, he just is shocked when, in the beginning of Stave 2, the ghost of Christmas past arrives. Yeah, I did want to touch a little bit more on Jacob Marley, though, because I think this is like a... The way ghosts work in this, I think, is is kind of novel. In that, like, Jacob Marley is not, like, they're not um, spatially bound. Jacob Marley talks specifically about, like, going, you know, about. He has that, like, line about, like, you know, if your human spirit does not go about in life, then it goes about in death. And he, the ghost, rather than being, like, a contained to one place, he's, like, a wandering specter. And that he has, like, adopted this specific mission uh, with regards to, like, Scrooge's redemption. But I also think, like, why... Like, Jacob has also an ulterior motive. He There's a reason why he wants Scrooge to be redeemed, and that will end his suffering and wandering. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't believe him. There's that great part uh, where he tells him that he's a bit of undigested cheese. Yeah. And he says there's more of gravy than of grave about you, which uh-huh. is some good. There's lots of like, Charles Dickens is kind of a dork. Like there's lots of that like cheesy wordplay and like I'm so clever writing. Like the story opens with this thing where he says something about, I think he's talking about Jacob Marley and he says that he's dead as a doornail. And then he's like, mm-hmm, but you know, I would think that a coffin nail would be the deadest piece of iron in the workshop. And it's like, you fucking dork. <laughs> in a way, like, I feel like, I'm sure he's consciously modeling him in some capacity, but it makes me think about, like, someone like Neil Gaiman. Especially later on. We'll get to it in, in Stave 2. There's a part where I'm like, oh, okay, I see. This is, like, the origin point for, like, a Neil Gaiman. So Stave 2 
shows us the ghost of Christmas past. And I like this depiction. You don't often see this depiction in adaptations, which I think is really nice. He's sort of described as a sort of androgynous, very thin, very sort of tiny body structure. And he has a light that is around the top of his head. Mm -hmm. And they, I should say, because they're androgynous. They carry with them, like everyone carries something with them in the story. That's yeah. another motif. Carry, they carry with them this sort of bell-shaped candle snuffer. Mm -hmm. And then this ghost is very friendly and talkative. He, they, try to show some of the good parts of the past Christmases that Scrooge has been involved with. But I think it also shows sort of a sad kind of realization of what is the genesis of why Scrooge acts the way that he acts. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're saying, like, a lot of the adaptations do really... Do tag on to the androgynous thing. This character is, like, sort of simultaneously, like, a young boy and a mother. They're described as being, like, having aged, but also young features at the same time. But a lot of times the adaptations ignore this, like, also they're a living candle person. But I think candles are both an important part of society at the time that Dickens is writing this, but also sort of an iconic symbol of Christmas. Yes, especially totally. for like Christianity, you know, with the Advent wreaths and then all people put candles or candles like symbols on their Christmas trees. So even though we don't use candles that are I mean, that sort of depiction of like the candle in the holder where you put your thumb through and you have mm. a white candlestick. People don't use those candlesticks anymore. Yeah. But they're still part of this vision of what Christmas is like. Yeah, yeah. If this was now... like that, That's like the iconic depiction of Scrooge is like he's in the pajamas with the little hat and he's got the candle holder. But if it was like now, he would have just have his phone with the flashlight on. Yeah. Uh, there's also this weird part of the description of the ghost of Christmas past where they're described as, like, their limbs are, like, limbs are coming out of their cloak in, like, weird configurations. Like, they have, like, like, there's, like, spawning and disappearing, like, arms and legs coming out of them. Yeah, that's weird. It's, like, almost like an Old Testament angel sort of thing, very briefly. But it's also sort of described in this way where it could just be a trick of the light. Like, the, I think maybe those are supposed to be, like, the flame is flickering and, like, the shadows are moving around and giving that illusion, maybe. Yeah, and I think it's kind of very simplified to say that the ghost of Christmas past is a candle because he illuminates the past. Yeah. But I think the symbol of and the depiction of this ghost as candle-like has more to do with other things. You can kind of, like, all the ghosts, you can kind of be like, oh, the ghost of Christmas past is a candle, the ghost of Christmas present is Father Christmas, and the ghost of Christmas future is the Grim Reaper. Yeah. But I think there's a lot more going on. So he shows him what he thinks is most innocent past. And then you get a scene where um, it's kind of sad. Oh, it's, it's sad. All things sad. Ebenezer is a young boy and he's left at a boarding house because his father... A boarding school. Boarding school. His father thinks he needs to stay there. And he has this moment where he creates these characters from books that are almost like his imaginary friends. Yeah, but it's, I think it's notable, I'm like weirdly going out of my way not to keep saying the word interesting. I have developed a very, I've developed an insecurity about saying the word interesting too much on this podcast. But there's this thing where, about the way it's depicted, 
where it's it's they don't just see young Scrooge reading alone and getting excited. In the vision that the Ghost of Christmas Past is giving Scrooge, he sees the characters. Right. Like he sees Alibaba, that's the first one, appear outside the window and he sees the other characters from the story that Scrooge is reading. Uh, and it's this very like, I'm a writer, I love writing in stories, and it's like, here's a little glimpse of how powerful stories are, and they help this young boy. But I also think it opens up a an interpretation of these visions, where it's like, I think the door knocker thing is there to be like, please don't interpret this as just being a dream. Um, but this opens up another sort of ambiguity, where it's like, Maybe he's not dreaming that he's seeing the spirits, but, like, they're showing him this very non-literal vision where he sees into his own past mind and imagination, and he's seeing this memory as he perceives it in his mind. So I have to wonder, are all of these visions from his mind, like, are the spirits, like, there's, once we get into, like, present and stuff all these visions are of like people talking about him they mention him in every one cratchit mentions him in his feast and is very positive about him and has faith in him that he probably shouldn't so does his nephew and are the ghosts showing him what's really happening or what the version of things that's happening that he needs to see to make a change well, I was going to say that the the sort of montage that we see, which is Scrooge alone in his boarding school and he mm. has his imaginary friends. And then there's a period where there's an episode where his sister, Fan Fanny, mm-hmm. shows up to get him from boarding school. And there's a depiction of a party where he works for a man named Mr. Fezziwig and there's a party. And Very he, Dickens type of name yes. for that guy. And then... There's kind of like a, so then it gets to the part where there's this sort of downturn where um, Scrooge is having he's having a conversation with his then fiance Belle, which we've learned later she leaves him for another man. But it's interesting because as the ghost is showing Scrooge these things, we're seeing these things and we're seeing the sad parts of it. Mm-hmm. But Scrooge is watching them and he's kind of like, oh, yes, I remember that. And he remembers fondly this sort of now kind of cringeworthy Alibaba character that he creates. And then we see him talking about how great the party was and how much he loves his sister fan and she came to rescue him. And then he speaks fondly of Belle. So even though we're seeing this sort of sad Christmas past that he has, Scrooge is unaware of those sort of bad feelings that have led to like why he is the way that he is. You read that and you say, okay, Scrooge had an abusive distant father Mm -hmm. who left him in a boarding school in the holidays and he was forced to create this sort of friendship with these imaginary creatures. And that he was forced to attend this party because he couldn't work and make money. So he had to sort of do this. But he thing. does like the party. But also the but other... then he also talked... Then he goes off after the party and him and his clerk partner, they live under the, the counter. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about Fezziwig for a second. But the other thing I want to say is that the, we, we learn, I think, in this sequence, what we don't see... It, I might actually learn this in the next day. 
But another detail we get about his past is that his sister dies. She's she is dead and has the only thing she's left behind is her son, his nephew, who he's a dick to. So even though he he feels kind feelings for his sister, which we know he has in the flashback, mm-hmm. he doesn't carry those feelings over into current to the time that he is you know where he's at now well yeah he's like kind of just generally dead inside by now but yeah so i think the the fezziwig thing uh says a lot i think about dickens himself and his attitude in writing this novel and his take on wealth it's also one of those things that again struck me as feeling you know, of echoing stuff I keep hearing now. Oh, that was the only thing I want to talk about in the very beginning. That part where he's, they're trying to get the charity and he's like, oh, are the workhouses closed? It made me, th- it, it like really reminded me of like, you know, to part the kimono a little bit and, and destroy the illusion. We record these ahead of time and we're recording this episode in late October. And there's currently a big political fight happening in England about feeding children. And like, it really bummed me out reading that part and being like, this is literally the same argument that is, like, I could open up Twitter and go to any British person I follow and see this exact same argument happening right now, over a hundred years after this was published. Which, like, oof, bummer city. But he he's, like, gets really into this vision of, like, this party and everyone enjoying it. Mr. Fezziwig is portrayed as being this very kind and avuncular sort of dude. And the ghost of Christmas past is like, everyone is so grateful. And the ghost of Christmas past is like, oh, you know, strange how grateful they are for such a little thing. And Scrooge is like, yeah, but it means a lot. And like, that's his argument. But it made me think about like, these posts you see constantly, right? On the, on the internet about like, what small a percentage of like Jeff Bezos' wealth would need to be sacrificed to cure hunger or fund, you know, universal health care or whatever. And there's this like constant focus on like how easy and small an effort and sacrifice a rich person would have to make to change the life of a poor person. And it's like, oh, we've been making that argument forever and it never gets anywhere. And here's Dickens making it now pleading with the rising class of billionaires like look at how little you have to do to be seen as like a hero and a saint and it's never going to work and they're never going to listen because they got in the position to do that by being a person who is incapable of making that sacrifice but i think you're right because like jeff bezos's comeback about this criticism all the time is like my company makes a lot of jobs yeah, exactly. And it's like, the, the, you make a lot of jobs, but they're not full-time, they don't provide health care, they're not accommodating to, like, families. and di- So, I mean, they're, you're you're giving people a bunch of Bob Cratchit assistant worker jobs that mm-hmm. really can't let them... Like, when they depict Bob Cratchit, he's barely surviving. Yeah. That's part of what makes me think about, like, get this interpretation that, like, Scrooge is not seeing things as they actually are. He, which is like another like damning indictment of this, the very idea of this, which is that like they would still need to see a fake version of the world to even make this change that seems impossible anyway. Well, I think that's true because the way that we see them, like the boarding school, for example, which we talked about, 
that he's obviously neglected. Yeah. And he has a terrible childhood. But the way that that Scrooge is seeing it, he sees that as a fond memory. Well, and he's... then he gets in this sort of argument with the ghost of Christmas past. And at one point he gets so agitated, he just literally extinguishes him by taking the snuffer and putting the light out. That is a wild sequence. But yeah, he does. that does happen. But yeah, the last... I think that before that happens, the last vision he sees in the past is Belle with another guy with another man and she has a happy family and it's again this other another depiction of people being happy in poverty which is and again makes me think like you know maybe these aren't so real and it's also another instance of characters inexplicably talking about scrooge himself which feels like another thing where i'm like this is him pleading with the coming millionaires where he's like look about aren't you concerned about all the shit people are going to talk about you don't you want your legacy to be positive and it's like they don't care dickens i'm sorry but they don't give a shit but yeah like the guy her husband comes home and he's like oh i ran into an old friend of yours and she guesses it was scrooge and he's like yeah he seems like really sad and lonely and that's kind of the last vision he has of the past before the next stave so after he extinguishes the ghost of christmas past because he has a hissy fit Mm-hmm. The next stave, stave three, is the ghost of Christmas past. The present. Present. And he sort of depicted almost like a kind of like, like a mix between like Father Christmas and like Bacchus. He's very large and he has this green velvet robe that's like open because he's like into decadence. Yeah, he's got a wreath around his head and a big right, bushy a, beard. A holly wreath and he's carrying sort of a, a cup of some Oh no, he has a cornucopia that he's carrying yeah and he's got like an incense thing too right right? this is like the most pagany that this gets there's also it's very it's you you brought up like oh there's not like a lot of like religious stuff in here which is true and i I think that dickens probably was not terribly religious i mean he seems more like a humanist than anything but his, his depiction of like the spirits and stuff here is like fairly animistic he's very literally the spirit of this current present Christmas day. And he makes reference like to his people, to his race of Christmas days. And he makes a little joke about there being over 1800 of him. And like, he gets older and weaker as the day goes on. Like he is literally just this day personified as a person. And then like at the end of this stave, the personifications of ignorance and want show up as like weird feral children. Yeah. That is one of the weirder parts. So the ghost shows um, Scrooge this sort of vision of, like you said, like the contemporary Christmas. And there's visions of like, there's people shopping and they're they're greeting each other and they're Mm. sort of filled with this sort of happy, joyous feeling and they're friendly to each other. And then you see this sort of, this kind of gets a little offensive to me. If I was a poor person at the time, I would be <laughs> That's offensive. what I'm saying. This is like, written by a rich person for rich people, begging them to not be such fucking assholes. Yeah, like there's the miners in the minor town who are poor but happy that they have each other and they're glad they have their jobs. And then there's this weird, gnarled man from the lighthouse. There's two, two guys in a lighthouse who are celebrating Christmas. <laughs> it's, it's Robert Pattinson. Yeah, it's, it's Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. Yeah, it's totally what it is. Before things go off the rail, they're just having Christmas together. Yeah, and like sailors, I think. Because he, he shows him the Cratchits. He shows him his nephew's Christmas party. And then he shows him a bunch of other people. So he sees these miners, these lighthouse wikis, and um, sailors who are like... It's like each one is further detached from... I do... I agree with you. 
that it is kind of like a little offensive to people to like working class people and people in poverty because it's like there are like oh look at them they're they don't even know that their their life sucks um but i do kind of like the idea where he takes them further and further out from society until it's like these dudes that are completely isolated in the middle of the ocean but they still have this christmas spirit and this healing of fraternity with their fellow man that scrooge who lives in the most one of the most populous cities in the world doesn't have yeah and and so he goes to the cratchit house and they're poor but they're happy like just the typical you Mm -hmm. know depiction of the cratchits they're making do with this small goose and they have a christmas pudding and it's very small Mm -hmm. and then i think you don't see this a lot, but there's a part where the daughter who's in service comes back for the day. She works for a milliner. Yeah, so she comes back. She plays and, a prank on Bob Cratchit yes. for pretending not, to not show up. Yeah, and he, you know, you see him, you, he's depicted, He he's a family man. He's very caring about his family. They make do with a little bit that they have, and they're grateful that Scrooge has given Bob a job and that he, I guess, in this day... I mean, come on, this is kind of like... This is the pandemic right here. Mm-hmm. Pe- the people who have jobs are very grateful that they have jobs, even though Scrooge is terrible. And I think even at one point, his wife tries to sort of be like, well, I'm not going to wish him a Merry Christmas. And then his he has to tell his wife, like, we need to be more charitable. That's kind of a weird thing where the only... Again, I think this says a lot about Dickens, is that almost no one is mad at Scrooge, despite how bad he is. Which, like, on one hand, that is probably a better rhetorical technique than showing these rich people everyone who fucking hates them. To be like, what if they were actually sad about you? Well, would that, that would maybe have a better chance of getting through. But the only people that call him out are women. Yeah. Cratchit's well, wife calls him out, and Fred's wife calls him out. But that's it. The two dudes are like want to treat him with like grace and forgiveness but let's talk a little bit about what's going on in dickens life at this time is he, he getting a divorce worse <laughs> he is married and has multiple children and then he leaves his wife to take up with a younger woman and then has the aggravation of being upset about his wife publicly telling people that he's a shit heel. huh but then he that's interesting because then he has the wives do that. And it's not necessarily, I think... I mean, I don't know. Maybe if I was reading this at the time, I'd have a different interpretation. But, like, it doesn't seem like it's supposed to be a bad thing. They're not supposed to be wrong, right? Right. Like, it's like... It seems like Dickens... It's He would be, he would be like a writer of prestige TV now. Because he's very much like a... Yeah, you're right. I am a piece of shit. Let me write a story about how much of a piece of shit I am. Well, that's what he's kind of... He, I think he, in the beginning of this play that plays out in his personal life he doesn't understand why society and the wife are upset that he wants to take a vacation from his marriage and take up with this woman i think the thing about scrooge where you said more people aren't mad at him i think even during scrooge's redemption his redemption is so small it's basically the redemption of him taking care of bob cratch's family and being more generous he does he pay for Tiny Tim's health care. Right. <laughs> so he provides health care for his workers. For, for Yeah. So, I mean, that's better than nothing. Yeah, but you're he right. But does, he doesn't, like, work to change society. He mm. only... But I guess that's the the point is, even on a small 
you know, small scale, you can be charitable. Well, yeah. Well, I think, like I said, I think my take is that, like, Dickens sees the problem, but he is afraid of the solution. So he tries to offer this alternative solution, which is, what if rich guys were nice? But, like, Bob Cratchit could just easily be, like, eat the rich. like. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But instead he's like, we need to be sympathetic because he's such a dick. But you see this constantly now. Like, lots of liberals, like, have this idea where it's like, well, we can reform, we can still have rich people, but we can just get them to give more. And it's like, yes, on paper that does work. We could have a slight, we could have a more just society that does include rich people, but in practice it's never going to work because they're always going to want more and they're always going to want to give less. And it's like fundamentally like the way capitalism works is they have to take stuff they don't own, they didn't earn and didn't make in order to get rich. They have to take your surplus labor. And like it's just the contradictions are untenable. But this vision of the like the just rich person who, who gives enough so that everyone can live relatively comfortably and yes he'll live more comfortably than you but you won't be in danger of dying of illness in the street like is pervasive because it is an attractive illusion because you know we all want to be a rich person but i think i like to get on to the part about ignorance and waste or want that are depicted as these poor starving children and at the point, he starts to have a conversation with them to the ghost of Christmas present. And he says, can't anything be done? And then the ghost kind of takes his own words and throws them back in his face. And he says, aren't there any poorhouses? Aren't the prisons? Uh, yeah. And uh, he kind of like, Scrooge kind of realizes that his like logic is starting to be, to falter. And he starts to see this sort of, the problem with the way that he behaves. But then I also think that you start to see, he starts, Scrooge himself starts to see, he didn't see it in the past, but he sees it now. The conversation that the nephew has with the guests of his house where they talk about Mm -hmm. him and the way that Bob Cratchit's wife feels about him, he's starting to realize that things are not as great as he thinks they are. Yeah. It's also interesting because I was like, oh, they're the only ones that are mad at him. They're not really mad at him. Their take, both uh, both times he gets called out by a woman, their take isn't like, this guy sucks and should be dead or whatever. Their take is like, stop praising him. He's not worthy of praise. It's not like, it's not, they're not saying he is worthy of condemnation. They're just saying he's not worthy of exaltation. Yeah, and I think like Bob's wife is right. Bob doesn't need to be grateful that he has a job. Yeah. Like, Scrooge should be grateful that Bob stays with him. Yeah, doesn't fucking stab him and take the coal thing. But that's another part. He does, later on, at the very end of the story, when Scrooge shows up and he's, like, in this Christmas mania, Cratchit contemplates beating him up because he's scared (laughs) of him, like, in that moment. But he's only scared of him once he starts to be nice to him. Well, wouldn't you be afraid, too, if you were dealing with him? Yeah, I mean, it does seem like he's lost it. But, like, the the depiction of the Cratchits, like, it's so idealized. And specifically Tiny Tim, who is this, like, beatific messiah child. Who There's a part where he talks about, like, wanting to people to see him so they could be reminded of the miracles Jesus worked. Which is, like, the one part of, like, genuinely religious matter that comes up in this. Uh, and it's like, doesn't all of this make more sense if this is... 
if in the same way that like Dickens is writing this idealized family to try and get through to rich people, it doesn't make more sense if in the story the spirits are writing the Cratchits as an idealized family to get through to Scrooge. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess it's kind of like the point is they're supposed to be this sort of idealized worker family, mm-hmm. and Scrooge is the awful boss. But it's like, but I, also, let's talk about one other thing. Mm-hmm. They like give the children gin, like a gin punch. Yeah, they do. But <laughs> they all, only have two cups, but they do drink a lot of gin punch. Yeah, drinks were a lot weaker though back then. Well, I was to be clear, like I don't think these kids are getting wasted. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about it later because I did find when I was doing my research the most fantastic thing that. Scrooge, uh, Scrooge's Charles Dickens' great grandson wrote a book called Drinking with Dickens, yeah. where he wrote in it was in the 1980s. There's a couple reference. There's also there's a weird reference that I had to look up. The smoking bishop. smoking bishop, <laughs> yes. which is like a mold wine. Yeah. So anyway, th- this book sort of has all the recipes that are mentioned in numerous Charles Dickens novels, but I think that's really funny that the you know the little kids. They're so poor, they have to share a cup, but mm. yet they have enough gin punch to get <laughs> yeah. happy, I guess. Well, that was funny, because when we talk about where he says, Merry Christmas, that the term Merry at that time meant drunk. Mm-hmm. So that's why a lot of British people would say Happy Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And then in the United States, Merry Christmas becomes a sort of, like... The default. Yeah, and then, you know, the whole conservative war on Christmas is because people won't say Merry Christmas. But at the time that Dickens writes this, Merry means get drunk at Christmas, like like have a party. It doesn't mean anything religious. It doesn't mean anything sort of Christian. It's sort of a phrase that means, like, let's party, you know. Yeah. Well, I think, like, we talked about it when I was like, oh, like, with his house being dark and stuff, there is kind of a... Not necessarily un or anti-Christian message, but there's this thing where, like, it's pretty clear that, like, part of what Dickens thinks is good and right in his worldview is, like, sensory pleasure and, like, eating and drinking. And, like, part of what's wrong with Scrooge is that he doesn't like stuff. Yeah. And, like... He doesn't have any sort of self-comfort or self-care or coziness that we associate with, like... Christmas. Yeah. Like, Christmas is the time to, like, overindulge and, and, like, be merry and, you know, drink and have parties and visit with people and sort of get in that sort of spirit of, like, charity and Scrooge is, like, Mm -hmm. denuded of any of that feeling. I think another thing about this, uh, this part of the story that doesn't get talked about a lot is his character are kind of complete here. He is pretty much changed entirely before the Ghost of Christmas Past shows up. And that's one of the things he pleads with the Ghost of Christmas Past, saying, I have changed already. Yeah. But I when think that character shows up. Like, the, the ghost is there to sort of reinforce yeah. the, what can happen if you don't change. So, Stay 4 is the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, which they now call the Ghost of Christmas Past. Uh, future. Future. He's depicted, he's not clearly explicitly depicted as the Grim Reaper, but he's depicted as a form, sort of a nebulous dark form in a black robe 
with a skeletal hand. He holds the sort of um, lantern, mm-hmm. you know, that you sort of think of when you think of like the depiction of like the River Styx yeah. and the, you know, and the. There's bird. a specific image I'm thinking of in my head that's like an Art Nouveau illustration where it's like flat on one side and it's like the cloaked figure who's like standing on like a ledge with the outstretched lantern. Do you know yeah, what I'm talking about? I, I know what you're talking about, and to me, that makes me think of the who's the the gate, the boatkeeper in the River Styx. Charon. Yeah, I think that it's kind of like it's not the Grim Reaper, but it might be that. Well, I think part of the I think part of the maybe there's like an intentional like that he's supposed to be like the Grim Reaper, but I think a lot of what's going on in the depiction of this is it's supposed to be like an unperson, like an indistinct, nondescript, like. Because the future is is unknown and unknowable, and so this ghost is like featureless almost, and like that's has this like shapeless cloak. And it's and, kind of like when you think of the word specter, you think mm-hmm. of this. So he he doesn't ever speak to yeah. Scrooge, and he sort of just gestures, and it starts with him. He shows. A whole bunch of like businessmen who are like mocking the news of the death of this man, and they're kind of talking about if they should go to the funeral. And this is what really made me think of the death of Ivan Ilyich. They start debating and arguing with oh. each other, and one of them says he'll go to the funeral, but he wants a free lunch. And then this reminds me of two things. One, there's always like there's no such thing as a free lunch, but then it reminds me of Ivan Ilyich, where these men have to interact with Scrooge because. He's a businessman, mm-hmm. but they you learn that they have no either no fashion, no friendship, no compassion, and no connection to him. And the only reason why they're even contemplating going to his funeral is one, they want a free lunch, and two, they need to be seen as businessmen involved in a you know in this activity because it might reflect on their own businesses. Yeah, I think like the idea behind that scene and the like bureaucrats talking about whether or not. Or talking about Ivan Illich dying, is like it's trying to illustrate this idea to these people that like these guys that you see as like your equals and peers, you are only bound together by class interest. There because there is no fraternity amongst these bloodsuckers because they're bloodsuckers. And so like if you remain amongst them, you will not you're not gonna get any real friends. Yeah, and then the next scene is um people picking through a dead man's personal effects you see like the laundress and the people who might work for this person going through his stuff and then they end up fencing it so they sort of profit from his death without really caring about him and then there's a shrouded corpse that he sees and then he thinks he's seeing people who are sad about the death of the person you don't know who it is until late until a little bit later and you see a couple who are sort of rejoicing because They've realized that this person has died, they had a debt with that person, and now it's been relieved, and they can finally stop living under this debt payment that's destroying them. Very much relevant to what's going on in society today as well. And then he starts to, he goes and he sees the Cratchit family, and he sees them mourning the prophetized death of tiny tim Mm -hmm. and then you see a grave and then this is the big reveal he sees the tombstone and it says ebenezer scrooge and then you realize that all of the things that he saw 
were people reacting to the news of his death. And he kind of gets this feeling that he's going to die without any impact in the world except for being rich. Yeah, then there's also leads to this possible interpretation where it's like, is what happens to Scrooge at the end, like, less of, like, him having, like, a moral, like, rebirth? Or is it that looking at your own grave makes you suffer ego death? But also I think it's telling because at one point where... Fan's son, who's a very happy and well-adjusted man, when they're talking in the party, he says, well, won't you be glad when Scrooge dies because you'll inherit the money? And he says, like, oh, he wouldn't leave that money to me. So even in death, he would be miserly and, like... Yeah, nobody knows where his money's going. They're like, is it, he's leaving it to his company or something. Uh, but it, it's also, like, I mean... I think one of the saddest parts happens in this, which is where... They're, the Cratchits experience this moment of relief upon learning about Scrooge's death because it means that they'll have a small respite from their debts until someone else buys it. Yeah. Which, like, it's, again, but it's also like, Dickens, how can you be aware of a system that works like that and not be like, this needs to be totally torn apart from the ground up? That's, like, horrific, that moment. But, like, I don't know. I like to think that... Um... Bob Cratchit inherits Scrooge's bank and opens up a community bank. Well, that's and, not going to happen. Yeah, but it's kind of like, yeah. So even like his nephew points out that like he's such a terrible person that even when he dies and it has no matter to him, he will still be spiteful and mean to his only remaining family. So Scrooge gets very upset and he pleads with, and this is a very weird part in my mind, he pleads and pleads and pleads with the ghost and the ghost doesn't do anything. And then the ghost just sort of fades into the like edge of the bed and becomes the like bedpost. And then Scrooge wakes up and he realizes that he's still alive. Yeah. I mean, this is also, that's the like really famous part where he's like, is this the vision of what will be or what might be or what could be or something like that? And I, what I really like about this part is that he doesn't get an answer. Like, he makes the change with no certainty that it will change his fate in the future. Well, I think that's kind of, that's Dickens sort of making it, making this sort of leap of faith that, like, Scrooge has changed fundamentally by the experience that he has. And even though he doesn't know if he can change his fate at all, he's decided to make amends. And I think that's what it is in the... In the stay five, he wakes up and that's kind of like, hey, you, is it Christmas morning? And then he says, oh, thank goodness, the, the ghost did it all in one night. And then he sort of quickly starts to make amends. Like, he runs out and he sees the two men who were collecting for the charity and he makes amends and he gives them a large donation. And they're kind of like, is this the Scrooge that we saw yesterday? Mm. And then he sends the young boy to get the biggest turkey that he can find. Yeah, yeah. And then this sort of differs a little from most of the adaptations. He doesn't go to the Cratchit house. He just sends the turkey and he mm. goes to his his nephew's house. Which makes more sense, I think. Yeah. But the people care more about the Cratchits than they do about his, his nephew. A lot of adaptations cut him out yeah. of it. Um, but yeah, they say he becomes like a second father to Tiny Tim. Yeah. Well, then there's a kind of like this scene that's kind of like shows him almost back to his like joyous nature like he was when he worked for Mr. Fezziwig 
the next day he goes to work early and he does the same thing he does he puts the one piece of coal in and he waits for Cratchit and then he's kind of like I'm hoping that Cratchit is going to be late today kind of like and you're like okay maybe he just was nice for one day mm-hmm. and then Cratchit like lurches in and he's like 15 minutes late for work because I guess of all the gin punch that he enjoyed with his yeah. family the night before and then he thinks he's in trouble and then Scrooge like does it like a 180 and he's like ah ha ha I was just kidding you're gonna get a raise and you're my good worker and I'm sorry I was so terrible to you and that's when he befriends Cratchit and the family yeah yeah this is the part that not that part specifically, but this last the last day of the Ghost of Christmas Future stuff is the thing is the part that is like the most stuck in my head. There's a specific adaptation that I haven't been able to figure out which one it is that I watched when I was a kid. It might have even been one of the stage adaptations, but in my mind, I think it's like a movie where their particular depiction of the future segment is like the main image that I think of when I think of a Christmas Carol. Is like the part where they're picking through his belongings and like making fun of him after his death and the part where he sees his own grave like that stuff stuck with me like forever and was like deeply affecting to me as like a kid i mean we've talked a lot about this podcast that i like i'm kind of obsessed with death and like had a lot of anxiety about death as a kid that i still have and like that idea that like this vision of like what it is like to for the world after you are dead was like really affecting yeah and i think it's kind of like i mean it's kind of like if you can have this redemption why not have it before christmas i only have one question though why does it take seven years for jacob marley to show up he's got to do a lot of wandering he says oh okay that makes sense yeah scrooge asks him he's like well why are you so slow it's been seven years and that's what he says like it's like He's had to wander a lot because of all of his chains and shit. I think a lot about, like, if if ghosts on this particular night were visiting a lot of people and a lot of people had redemption stories. Mm-hmm. Or if for some reason, like, Scrooge was targeted. Yeah, well, that's the thing you get at. It's like, why Scrooge? Why just Scrooge? Why put all this work into this one guy? He's not even that rich. He's like, he owns a count house. Like, he's he is rich, but he's not, like... He's not, a, he's not a billionaire. He's not a millionaire. He's, he doesn't own, like... He's not a shipping magnate or something. Well, I think you're right, though, because he is wealthy enough and has enough disposable income and the means to generate more income where he can improve the lives of the people in a close proximity to him. Yeah. He can definitely improve the lives of the Cratchits, and he can, you know, improve his own life and the life of his nephew. Because there's a hint that even though he's nice and happy and joyous, that he does have debt. Yeah. So he kind of like, you know, that's why they're kind of like, well, you could use the money from your uncle. And he's mm-hmm. like, I'll never get that money. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I also think like if he was a more, if he's more rich, like he, he really only has power over Cratchit. Yeah. Which is lets, lets, lets him have this connection to him and this like revelation about like Cratchit's family. Whereas if he had like hundreds of people working for him, it would be much harder to convince us that he would be able to see any of them as human and equal, which is sad, and another sort of indictment of this story and of Dickens' worldview. Yeah. I think that this story, and I'm not even sure if there's a way to quantify this to see if it's true or not, I think this might be the most adapted story of all time. It's entirely <laughs> possible. Uh, yeah, I don't know how exactly you would quantify it, but like, 
I mean, the only thing that would really give it a run for its money are, like, some Bible stories. And, yeah. like, not even Shakespeare, I think. Maybe Shakespeare, like, but, like, adapted specifically into other mediums? Yeah, probably. It's, like, this or it's, it's like, Noah's Ark or something. What is your favorite adaptation? What is your favorite Christmas Carol version? Uh, the Muppets one. Muppets? Yeah, I like the Muppets one a lot. Michael Caine's great. I think, like, having, like, Kermit as Bob Cratchit is, like, inspired. Like, yes. it works perfectly. And isn't little Robin his nephew? Yeah, he's Tiny Tim. Tim. Uh, and I like, like, the uh, the version of the Ghost of Christmas present in that, like, really sticks in my mind where he's, like, this enormous, larger-than-life puppet man with, like, a booming voice. Let me check who does his voice. In my mind, I always imagine the the Ghost of Christmas present having uh, Brian Blessed's voice. Yeah. There might have been like a BBC adaptation or something that I watched once that did actually cast him in that role. I can't remember. What's your favorite? I I don't really have a favorite, but I do. I wanted to shout out this one that's fairly new. It's from 2019, and it's a Christmas Carol miniseries. Oh, yeah. See, And the executive producers are Tom Hardy and Ridley Scott. And it's very high quality. And Guy Pierce plays Scrooge and Andy Circus plays the Ghost of Christmas Past. Mm-hmm. But my favorite part is Stephen Graham plays Jacob Marley. And it's really close to the um, the novel. And but there is a part there's more about the backstory of Jacob Marley that's in it that they have created. But I think it's really well done. And it also sort of leans into the fact that of the Ghost of Christmas Past where Scrooge has this troubled childhood. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really well done. It's three parts and you can get it you could probably find it anywhere at this point, but it was originally it was in England it was on BBC, in the United States it was on the Sci Fi Channel. And I thought it was really well done. And I thought it really if you want something that's true to the story, then that's a good choice. Oh yeah, I wanna say of course, um the dude who voices Ghost Christmas President is the puppeteer. That's how the Muppets work. It's uh, Jerry Nelson who is like he did the Count. He does uh, Statler and Waldorf in the same one. That's another thing I really like about the Muppets one. They make they split Marley into two characters, Harley and Marley, and he's he is played by Statler and Waldorf together. They sing the best song in the movie. And the other really genius part about uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol is. Fezziwig is portrayed by Fozzie Bear. Of course. And he's Fozziwig. <laughs> I love that. It was very good. But I was surprised because, like, of all the different types of adaptations, I mean, there's animated ones. Like, did you know the Flintstones had a Christmas Carol? Yeah. I think Barney is Bob Cratchit at it, and Fred is Scrooge. Yeah. And, of course, the Mr. Magoo movie from the 1960s and Bugs Bunny and then there's been like radio adaptations. There's an opera. There's a ballet. There's graphic novels. Um, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about it before we recorded. There's a Batman Christmas Carol, and then Marvel has one that's part of their Marvel Zombies series. Well, Marvel um, Zombies gets very weird. There's lots of weird stuff in Marvel Zombies. Well, there's theater. You know, there's plays, and then like you talked about the TV episodes. Like I was thinking about like things like the X Files. Has a Christmas Carol inspired 
Yeah, Doctor Who's, Who's done yeah, it. Yeah, Doctor Who does that. The Doctor Who one's cool because rather than it being three spirits, the Doctor visits this guy at three points in his life, and he uses the time travel thing. Also, there's a flying shark in that episode. Yeah, and I think there's like lots of dramatic readings. You can find like lots of audio versions by famous writers. And then you talked about the Black Adder. There's a whole genre of Christmas Carol parodies. Yeah. And then one of my favorites was Edward Gorey did one called The Haunted Tea Cozy, which I think is really great. I saw this is totally unrelated, but I was seeing like the last couple of weeks going around on Twitter pictures from a Broadway production of Dracula starring Raul Julia with backgrounds designed by Edward Gorey. Yeah, well, that, I think that's that, wild. That sounds amazing. I don't. I mean, I hope that it's, there's a recording of that somewhere because I would love to see that. Yeah, but I mean, there's lots of iconic movie. I mean, the earliest movie adaptation of A Christmas Carol was like in 1905, which was really early cinema at that time. And there's lot. There's the iconic one from the 30s and the 60s, and then the 80s, and then the 80s one was kind of like. This is what happens when you're a greedy businessman. Yeah. Well, then there's, there's Scrooge with, you know, Bill Murray. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. And then isn't there one with, like, Donald Duck? I know there's there, a Bugs yeah. Bunny one. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, there's one. We're Mickey Mouse is Bob Cratchit in that. I guess it, it must be Scrooge McDuck who's the... <laughs> Scrooge. I can't remember. I just remember the, the Mickey Mouse being and there being like a tiny Tim mouse. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Also, please note, this is a Christmas episode and we didn't talk about the Nutcracker. So I think no. I deserve some special attention for that. Yeah. yeah. So overall, what did you think of this? Like, it's oh. a Victorian classic. What I think it's think? great. I mean, I, I mean, I know I got like my problems with Dickens' like worldview and ideology, but I think like the story as presented is really well-crafted. I mean, obviously, like it's hugely influential for a reason. There's lots of like I I like all the weird all the imagery with the ghosts and stuff, and like I think as much as I I keep saying that I feel like he's presenting this like idealized and romanticized version of these like poor and working class families. I think like there are lots of little bits of really well observed character stuff, and like the way they joke around with each other, and I do think he does a good job of making. Scrooge's, even though I think it is like in the real world ultimately impossible, I think he does a good job of making Scrooge's character arc actually feel like real. But it's like, yeah, it's real because he he's been subjected to like an impossibly life changing series of events that like other people will never ever experience. But I think it like it holds up really well. He's like he was a genuinely great writer. His stuff's still extremely readable. There are his some of his jokes are still genuinely funny, which is wild to say about something that like was written over a hundred years ago at this point. Yeah, I think the only thing I have is like sometimes he gets a little preachy. I think he gets a little preachy, and I think sometimes, like I said, he gets a little he gets a little like you know writing dork word nerdy, which can be a little bit exhausting. Um, I was looking up this thing that this has nothing to do with Christmas Carol, but it has to do with Charles Dickens. There's this story of, like, he was working on this novel that he never finished, Edwin Drood. Yeah. And that was based on this weird event that happens where he was actually involved in a, like, train wreck. 
And I didn't know that. That's what the story is about. And it's like kind of like he it left this unfinished novel that has been like haunting all of these writers from time to time who like sort of try to figure out what how the story would end or whatever. But anyway, I wrote this I read this really fantastic book by like one of your favorite writers, Dan Simmons, called Drood, where he writes up this alternative story about Edwin Drood and it has to deal with like this sort of eternal almost type of vampire. Edwin Drood is like this succubus that when the the story is unfinished at the point where it's the train wreck. Edwin Drood shows up and he's this sort of like vampire that like sucks off people's like tragedy. But I thought it was like you have like a Victorian writer who's writing these sort of social commentaries and then the take that Dan Simmons has because he's Dan Simmons is that there's this supernatural component that like preys on Charles Dickens' character. And I thought like those two together were like the weirdest but most perfect mashup. Well, yeah. I mean, well, if I wanted to be clear, yes, Dan Simmons is one of my favorite writers. I don't like him as a person. Just to be clear, I do think he's a bad person. Uh, and I disagree with his his political and social takes. But it, I do, you know, I can't deny that I've read a lot of his books and I like a lot of his books. But he does a lot of, like... He's the modern Lovecraft. He's, he's not dissimilar to... Him. He's not, <laughs> probably not as... He's not as bad as a Lovecraft. He's Hot just game. like a... He's just like a... Like a lunkhead libertarian, you know, conservative dork. Uh, but uh, he, he writes a lot of stuff where he's riffing on, like, older literature. Like, you know, he has Ilium, which is, like, about the Iliad. You know, the Hyperion is, like, it's sci-fi Canterbury. T- it's very much, the, like, yes. an interpretation of the Canterbury Tales. So, like, yeah, it makes sense to me that he would tag onto this, like, literary mystery and try to give his own interpretation of it and also one of the characters in the novel is wilkie collins so he takes charles dickens and wilkie collins and supernatural elements and he puts it together so instead of saying like how would this story have ended he comes up with this fantastical but then as we talked about that's not incompatible with the way dickens wrote because we said like he wrote ghost stories and stuff it's not inconceivable that he would have a a vampire or whatever show up in one of his works. Yeah, because I think that, I mean, Edwin Drood, the book is actually titled The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and it's unfinished. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of one of those literary classics. Uh, I also, if we're going to talk about, um, you know, reinterpretations of his work and stuff, I think it would behoove me to mention um, Fagin the Jew by... Uh, Will Eisner, which is like a take, you know, this very, un, you know, sort of unsympathetic kind of, you know, I said I liked Oliver Twist a lot, but that's like one of the really, everything I like has to be complicated and problematic and I have to justify my enjoyment of it. Like, but that's a very unfortunate part of that story. And Will Eisner uses the medium of comics to give a sort of reevaluation of this character and imbue him with this greater sense of humanity that I think the fact that Dickens didn't do when that was something he was good at is like a real tragedy. So I, check that out if you're interested. It's a very good comic. I thought you were going to bring up, I guess now that we're talking about general Dickens adaptations and one of your favorite uh, Disney movies, 
that's a take on Oliver Twist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oliver and Company. Yeah, that's great. So that is, yeah, that's an adaptation of Oliver. Great American songwriter. Yeah, the modern day Charles Dickens, Billy Joel, <laughs> is in it. I loved that movie when I was a kid. I think it still holds up. That's like a huge blind spot, though, like in the Disney canon. It's like even more than something like uh, The Black Cauldron. It's kind of forgotten. Like The Black Cauldron still gets brought up a lot as like, the example of like the ambitious failure but it's like all my favorites besides aladdin have been swept into the dustbin of history no one gives a shit about oliver company or the great mouse detective except for me who loves those both dearly yeah they definitely are classic i mean it's got it's got the stars all the sky was empty for all the stars were in oliver and company it's billy joel cheech marin <laughs> dom delaise <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's definitely there's there's a podcast miniseries coming out of that one. We have like the like the big stupid clamshell VHS case of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know why? Because at the time when you were little, this is one of the things that kids today are not going to have this experience. They had a thing where like they would release things that were not in the movies anymore. From the Disney vault. And you would have like a limited time where you'd have to run to like the Sears and buy a copy. And they were always in these giant white clamshells, which the kids would accidentally sit on at some point and they would always be crushed. Mm -hmm. And so you would only have like a limited time where you could run out and get like Oliver and Company or whatever. But that's like a total one like nostalgia with like the sound of the pop of like the, the clamshell opening. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a VCR here, no. but we have VCR copies of Aladdin, Fantasia, The Jungle Book. Yeah. We have all of the Aladdin, I guess the, I even guess the awful Jafar one. There was The Return of Jafar, and then there's uh, Aladdin. Is it Aladdin and the King of Thieves? Or is he the Prince of Thieves? The one where his dad shows up and he's voiced by John Reese davies I was going to say, The Jungle Book is the other one that I care about that like the general public also cares about. So yes. I guess it's like, those are the two. And then all my other favorites are I think, forgotten. I think for some reason, the year that you were born, or the, the season that you were born in the winter of 1991, Fantasia was released from the video ball. And we have yeah. a copy of that special yeah. edition. They also used to do theater, theatrical re-releases, because like, I'm pretty sure... I saw, like, Pinocchio in yeah. theaters. Yeah. Not one of my favorites. Very traumatizing to me as a child. Well, yeah, because at that time, they would have, especially during the holidays, they would have a special Christmas re-release where kids could go to the movies and see things. Yeah. So, which was good because we were tired of seeing The Lion King, so that was a good change mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. see something besides that. But yeah, also I can recommend, like, once this pandemic is over, knock on wood, that it will ever be over. If you can see, like, a local theatrical adaptation of Christmas Carol, I would recommend it. Because I've seen, like, ten of them throughout my life. And it's always, like, a pretty good time. Uh, you get, like, an older actor to really ham it up at Scrooge. I really want to talk about the Nutcracker. Because <laughs> that's another sort of iconic Christmas-themed sort of... Um... I would argue that the Nutcracker is even less Christmassy than this is. Yes. It's just kind of, like, has Christmas imagery and ha- is... We people listen to and perform it around Christmas time. I mean, if anything is like a horror story, it's the Nutcracker. Yeah, yeah. But we could talk about the Nutcracker. We'll figure out. We'll have to look this up because there actually there's a short story that's the basis of the ballet Mm -hmm. of the Nutcracker. 
We'll figure out a way to talk about the Nutcracker at some. Maybe we'll do that next year. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Do you have anything else to say about a Christmas Carol, though? No. No. I think it... Even if you don't... If you haven't read the Christmas Carol, you should read it. Because there are parts that are... The way that Dickens described things that are never depicted in any of the adaptations, which I think are really good to sort of understand. I feel like if you know the story of the Nutcracker, everyone... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know the story of the Christmas Carol, which everyone does, because there's many sort yeah. of stories and books and things like that, then I feel like you're not missing much if you don't read the book. Well, a thing we didn't really talk about, which I think, I, or we only really talked about it in so much as I kept calling him a dork, uh, is that like Dickens writes with a very, at least in this, but it does show up in his other works, he writes a very like... Um, personable sort of narrator that has a real character and perspective unto himself which you can only get by reading the work so there's almost like another character in the story that never get, doesn't get to show up in any of the adaptations because he is the narrator and observer of everything right but i'm thinking so it's it, worth it i think to read it at least to see some of that to get it, some of that it's also it's one of the shorter ones that's not a short story so it's approachable in that way but i feel like if you're like i only have the emotional bandwidth. bandwidth to read one Dickens novel, then which one would you recommend? You should read Oliver Twist or Great read... Expectations. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but like you, that I don't think that that's. I think that is a uh, that's a cultural illusion bullshit stereotype. You have the emotional bandwidth to read all of Dickens' stuff because his stuff's super readable. Yeah, I don't mean to. I don't know. Like I'm not. I know that I already gave this speech about Shakespeare, and now I got to give it again about Dickens. But like, because he's got this reputation as being the writer, his stuff. I think people think it's drier and more boring and less approachable than it is, which it isn't. Like this is almost. It's almost pulp stuff. It's it's almost soap opera. Like, you can read it and you'll enjoy it because it's fucking good. I think he suffers from this idea that it's hard to read things from the Victorian period. Yeah, but this is, like, some of the most readable stuff from this period. This is more readable than, like, Dracula even, which came later. Like, Dracula is a more, way more of a slog than any Dickens thing that I've read. I, it, I mean, yes. It's not like we're saying go out and read Ulysses. Go but do go out and read Ulysses, yes. But, you know, I know, I know. But but maybe fortify yourself as much as you can while you're reading that. Yeah. That's the book that almost broke me, but I did. It's weird that it's that and not Finnegan's Wake, which I think is harder to read. Do you think? It's got less of a clear narrative. I kind of like the thing with Finnegan's Wake is when I was reading it, like knowing that it's stream of consciousness, I was reading it and enjoying the rhythm and the writing and the imagery of the time that I'm reading it. Yeah. But as I'm reading Ulysses, I'm trying to follow what other people and critics say is a plot. Okay. That's just true. I agree with everything you just said. I think the thing, the reason I was like, oh, Finnegan's Wake is harder is because you have to let go of more. Like, if you can let go of the idea of the structured novel and read Finnegan's Wake like it's poetry. Exactly. I think it's a really enjoyable and actually relatively breezy read. But yeah, you're right. Like, Ulysses. That'll be on your tombstone. Nate, (laughs) Ulysses. 
a breezeable read. <laughs> oh, no, I said that about Finnegan's Wake. Ulysses <laughs> does, because it has more of a narrative, does ask you to try harder uh, to, like, wrangle it into a interpretable shape, which I guess can make it a harder read. That is, man, I can't believe I just said that about Finnegan. That is like, that's <laughs> like a parody of myself. That's your Christmas gift, I mean, everyone. I already in this episode had to talk about the Communist Manifesto, and now I said that. Oh, God. Merry Get Christmas, everyone. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up. <laughs> All right, Tony Christmas Kim. wrap it up. <laughs> All right, Tony oh, that's Kim. another thing. He says that in the middle of the story and not at the end, which is like they may they put that at the end of every adaptation now. But he just says it in the Ghost of Christmas Present part. Yes. All right. Spoiler alert! Stay tuned. 